RareSense content is not medical advice, nor does it represent the official position or opinions of any other organization or person. If you require diagnosis or treatment for a mental or physical issue or illness, please seek it from a licensed professional. All right, Andy, how's it going, man? It's going great, Chris. I'm really stoked to be here. Yeah, good. Good to see you. Uh, Before I do anything else, how do I properly pronounce your last name? I realize I don't even know. (laughs) My last name is pronounced Sabatier, S-A-B-A-T-I-E-R. Is it French? I assume it's French. Okay. Okay. French via Louisiana. So it's been sort of the bane of my existence my whole life getting it mispronounced, but it's sort of given me lots of of opportunities to sell. I would have been close. You know, maybe not 100%, but I would have been close there. So, uh, okay, well, let's start off with, um, I'm really excited about this because this is the first, you're the first like breathing expert I've ever spoken to. And uh, obviously we got into this a little bit where I met you in Denver the other month. Um, But I'm super pumped about this because I've never spoken to somebody directly who really knows what they're talking about when it comes to breath work. And I think it's so important. So this is exciting. So anyway, so start off with that. Just give me some back, give everyone some background on you, uh, your expertise, what you do, anything else you want to add. Sure. So uh, I'm a doctor of physical therapy and my clinical focus is breathing mechanics. And before I get too far down the wormhole, um, I want to make it clear that pretty much every human out there is in some way, a breathing expert, right? Because we're born and we just do this thing and we do it through our whole life and nobody really needs to tell us how to do it. You know, we spend a lot of time making sure a kid can walk, but kids breathe the second they're born, right? right. So my, uh, my kind of clinical walk up to focusing on breathing mechanics, um, I kind of came in through the back door. You know, you mentioned a, a term breath work. It's a, it's a term I'm not super... Uh, Super familiar. Well, I'm familiar with it because I hear it a lot, but I just don't really know what it means because it mm. can mean a lot of different things. Um, and it's kind of why I do what I do. Um, I My background, you know, I was a college athlete. I played lacrosse in college. I was lucky enough to kind of end up in a career as a professional skier for about five years after college. Uh, and then I went to PT school, kind of parlaying that experience as a college and pro athlete into physical therapy. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be working with athletes and do all that. When I got to PT school, I realized that I really didn't like the sports medicine orthopedic side of PT very much, but I got exposed to critical care. And I didn't even know physical therapy was something that happened in an ICU. And so I kind of started going down that that road and that led me to Stanford. And I was at Stanford for my kind of clinical education on their cardiac ICU, working with heart transplants and lung transplants and, you know, people with all kinds of complex, you know, pathologies. And when I finished there, I moved to Central Oregon where I live now and I got hired um, at a a level two trauma center that kind of covers about two thirds of the state. And they said, you know, can you build one of these ICU programs, you know, mobility programs like they have at Stanford? Because for the last however many years, as long as we've had ICU medicine until about 15 years ago, it used to be, okay, this person is sick, they're broken, let's get them better and then get them out of bed. But now we know that no matter why you're in the ICU, whether it's a heart attack or a stroke or a car accident or a suicide attempt that didn't work or COVID or whatever, the enemy is the same. The enemy is actually the bed because you lay still for a day and you start to lose your muscle mass pretty rapidly. And then that compounds day after day. And not only do you lose your muscle mass, but you lose your mental capacity as well. 
And emotionally, the toll is huge because movement is life. Yeah. So I got really used to meeting everybody on the worst day of their life. Hi, I'm Andy. Nice to meet you. Let's get out of bed because I'm better than nothing. That was kind of my, my role. And I was really good at it and, and helped people to move a lot. We, we made a lot of improvements in that first year on the ICU to the point that I just kind of casually started help people, helping people take deep breaths. You know, there's this little plastic gizmo called an incentive spirometer that's located pretty much in every single patient room in every hospital in the country. It's a little plastic device that you breathe in through and it shows you how big a breath you can take. So it gives mm. you a visual incentive. And the, the, the education behind it is basically just breathe. And that's what I was doing. Just take deep breaths and giving people this sort of, you know, energy that I, that I have, that I use in everything, just applying it to breathing. And I did this for a few months and, and everybody around me was like slapping me on the back and telling me, wow, way to go, extra mile guy, that's awesome. You know, whether it was the cardiothoracic surgeon or the respiratory therapy team or the nurses or the other PTs, everybody's just like <clears throat> tons of praise. Did you have some kind of background or did you no, have like so this, research? So this is the best I had no idea what I was talking about. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically giving a very enthusiastic version of just breathe. Yeah. And okay, got it. Got it. Yeah. And so I went and learned about breathing mechanics. So I went okay. and sought this out from a woman named Dr. Mary Massery, M-A-S-S-E-R-Y. She is kind of the maven of marrying the clinical side with the research side of breathing mechanics. Was it doing was, this for like was there something though, like with the people you were working with, you're saying slapping you on the back saying, Hey, this is great. Yeah. Was, I mean, was there something substantial that was going on there where you're like, Hey, this is actually working in a way that I want to look into this more or study this more? Not really necessarily. So, so most of the results that I have, right. My job in the hospital is to get you out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. Right. And oftentimes that means the simple aspects of, okay, can you get out of bed? Can you stand up? Can you walk? Can you sit on a toilet? Can you wipe yourself? Can you, can you take a deep breath? Can you cough? and do enough so that you can get out of here because people recover better at home or in a facility that's a little bit more set up for, for rehab approach. ICU is pretty tough. And I went and, you know, I kind of got this nudge from another therapist that I worked with. She came from a spinal cord hospital in uh, Atlanta and she said, you know, I don't know anything about breathing mechanics, but I know this is who you want to, this is who you want to go and see, like, this mm -hmm. is what you do. And so I red eyed, took this flight to a course where I'd, never even known about it. Like I didn't even look into it. I just signed up and went and I showed up and I'm the only male there. I'm the only non-pediatric. How, how, how many people? About a hundred people. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Physical therapy. So interesting, a little background on physical therapy. PT is born from nursing. During the polio epidemic, there was sort of this need for a mobility uh, concept in, in, in healthcare and like getting people moving and, and helping people that way that some nurses really wanted to do. And so that sort of turned into physical therapy. And so it's been differentiating itself gradually from nursing for you know decades, but there's still very a female kind of dominance. Interestingly though, practice owners are largely male. So there's sort of a little, you know, patriarchy kind of working in there, but either so way. So one out of you know, hundred is like. Yeah. And, know, and that's, that's not the only stat, right? I'm the only acute care therapist too. Everybody else there is based in pediatrics which is very much what this person, Mary Mastery, has been focused on for years and years and years, helping kids with real tough conditions, you know, kids shaped like question marks, kids with congenital abnormalities okay. or deformations or trauma or tracheostomies, things like that. Yep. And within about 15 minutes, Chris, 
I realized, oh my God, I have been breathing dysfunctionally my whole life. Mm. Athlete, therapist, ICU therapist, I still didn't understand the basics of breathing mechanics. Because not only was I breathing dysfunctionally, but I was actually coaching my patients to breathe dysfunctionally as well. And everyone around me was telling me how good a job I was doing. And so, so what did that mean? Like in what way was it? Good question. So breathing mechanics rely on three basic muscle groups. Your abdomen consists kind of one group. Your chest wall is a second group. And your accessories, the neck and shoulders, are a third group. Okay. And it comes down to, are we sort of using these muscles in a way that's efficient and effective? So one way I like to describe, I use a lot of metaphors because really what I do is I make breathing something that is not really visible and not really something you have to talk about, visual and verbal. And -hmm. that's kind of what I want to do here, which is tricky. So your abdomen is like the engine of a vehicle. You know, your breathing is this vehicle that moves you through your entire life. The abdomen is the engine. It pumps and powers every single fluid-based system in your body, primarily relying on your diaphragm, which is this unique dome-like sheet of muscle that sits inside your rib cage, but it's a part of your abdomen, so it's sort of confusing. There's actually all kinds of different layers of confusion around our breathing and how we talk about it. A lot of times you'll hear people say like belly breathing or right, breathe right. with your stomach and stuff like yep, that. Yep. You know, your belly is down low. Your diaphragm is way up in your lowest ribs. Right. So if you right. tell somebody, push your stomach out, they do all kinds of weird things instead of yeah. saying, okay, pull downward with your diaphragm. Because picture your diaphragm, it's this dome. Every time you inhale, it pulls downward and flattens. Yeah. So it pulls air down into the bases of your lungs. Yeah. And that's really where most of our breathing happens. So is that, your lungs is that wrong go. when people say that like belly breathing? Is that – I mean, is it why, technically wrong, right? Like is it sort okay. of a misnomer? It is a misnomer. Okay. And the reason why is because it, it accidentally causes more confusion. Most of the ways that we're talking about breathing, whether it's just breathe or belly breathing or, or using, you know, terms from yoga or terms from meditation or mindfulness or breath work or whatever, they're, they're kind of painting a partial picture. So if yeah. you tell somebody belly breathe, you might end up like one of my patients. He had two strokes about 10 years apart and somebody told him, it's really important that you belly breathe. So that's what he did. He kind of locked his chest in place, which is yeah. the other piece of this. Right. And he breathed exclusively with his abdomen. And now yeah. he's shaped like a C and can't swallow. <laughs> right? Sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that. But No, I mean, it's I mean, kind of scary, yeah. right? Because that person wasn't trying to harm him when they're of like, oh, not. you know, it's important to belly breathe. But in so it, doing, it, they kind of gave this partial explanation of breathing. Well, it, never, it never made any sense to me anyway when someone would say that. I, I understand kind of where they're going with it, but... I'm always like, well, my lungs aren't in my stomach, right? Like right. my stomach's in my stomach and my lungs are in my chest. So why wouldn't I at least partially breathe from my chest? The diaphragm, that makes sense. The muscle that's right. kind of going up and down. But it, it's always been like, push your stomach out. I'm like, I don't, that yeah, doesn't see? seem right. And, and as a PT, like what we deal with all day long are like compensatory mechanisms for people doing one thing or another. If it's your shoulder, it's like, okay, I'm doing all these things to kind of get around the shoulder pain. And we have to kind of undo those things that you're doing so that we can retrain your shoulder to move more effectively. So it doesn't hurt you anymore. And you can be stronger or walking. If somebody's walking with a limp, we know that that's probably going to cause pain somewhere else in their body, right? You might be limping because of your knee, but you're going to get a hip problem and a back problem. Breathing dysfunctionally is like limping with every single system in your body at the same time, 20,000 times a day. Yeah. So 
instead of getting like a hip problem or back problem, that's like an easy, understandable connection between the limp and the pain. When you breathe dysfunctionally, it creates problems in your nervous system, creates problems in your gut, in your cardiovascular system. It can lead to problems in your posture, in your digestion, in your balance. I mean, there's so much evidence out there that links all these different aspects of breathing mechanics with what your body does in every single system. Yeah. So, well, so, you know, so go back to, um, you said you were breathing dysfunctionally and most mm-hmm. everybody does. So dive into that a little bit more, like what specifically you were okay. doing there. And then also just, so, the, you know, this course and like what it taught you and, and sure. yeah. So let me lay out the anatomy a little bit. Cause if, if we sort of like know the players, we'll be able to keep referencing back to it. And that's kind of yeah, what yeah. we'll do. So abdomen's the engine pumps everything. Yep. Chest wall. This is like the chassis and the frame of the vehicle. Okay. Your rib cage is there to defend your vital organs. The chassis and the frame are there to defend the driver and transfer energy to the road. That's what your rib cage does. It defends your heart and lungs and transfers energy to your spine and to your arms and your legs. And two thirds of our quiet breathing happens without our chest wall moving at all. Only when we need a bigger, more powerful breath, do we recruit the top kind of portion, that chest. So in a way, your diaphragm, your abdomen, and your chest wall work like hands pumping a pair of bellows. The bottom hand pulls Mm. downward, the top hand pulls up and outward and we create an inhale. And that uses a little, that uses energy. And it's really where dysfunction happens in our breathing. We spend a disproportionate amount of our time exhaling in our life because Mm. it's mostly passive, right? This whole time I'm talking to you, I'm just exhale, 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 and then I'll quick little breath in and then keep exhaling. But inhaling, is where we use our energy and it's where we can be efficient or inefficient. So if somebody can breathe functionally, they not only save energy, but they also power and pump every single system in their body and regulate their brain. And if they breathe inefficiently, it kind of throws things off. So in a nutshell, dysfunctional breathing happens when we fail to recruit the abdomen, the diaphragm first. And instead we just go to our chest wall. Now there's another metaphor that's really important here retraining your breathing is a little bit like kids in a classroom. we got to teach these kids how to work together. There's only three kids in class. you got the accessory muscles in the neck and shoulders, the chest wall, and the abdomen. Now, the abdomen is like the shy kid in the back of the class, okay? Your diaphragm is unique. You have 600-plus muscles in your body that all attach to your skeleton. All of them are dominated by fast-twitch muscle fibers. So your legs and your chest and your back and your fingers and your face and your butt, all of these are built for speed and built for power. Your diaphragm has more slow twitch muscle fibers than any other muscle in your body. So it's built to do this amazing up and down, side to side, front to back expansion thing thousands of times every day. It just doesn't want to move that fast. And when we breathe faster, we can leave it behind. And if we know what we're doing – we can actually target it and specifically train your diaphragm so that some of those slow twitch fibers convert to fast twitch fibers. And that's the abdomen's. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Cause then, you know, if you're out running or pushing your system and you're breathing faster, your diaphragm contributes Ah, more. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So when we're doing that, we want to kind of maintain that diaphragm first, chest second, that's kind of how functional breathing works. And you're and saying most this, people just don't engage their diaphragm at all. They're basically just completely in their chest. It is really hard to say what most people do because the sure. more people I see, the more different sort of 
mechanisms and, and ways that people are kind of getting around, like breathing is survival. So mm -hmm. a lot of people are basically just relying on faster muscles because that's our chest, Yep. right? Our chest wall is really different from our abdomen. Chest wall, this is like the eager kid in class, okay? Yep. Every time the teacher asks a question, their hand shoots in the air and they're like, ooh, ooh, call me, call me. And the teacher calls on them and they're like, I don't know. Because the chest wall is made of all fast twitch fibers. So it's okay. built for speed and power. Okay. So if I need to expand my diaphragm first every time I breathe, but my chest is faster, you can see how easy it is to dysfunctionally breathe because the harder I try, the more I work, the more my chest takes over and it leaves the diaphragm behind. So let's get into when you say that's dysfunctional, what does that mean, right? Like, so okay. what? Okay, so, I, so I'm okay. breathing from my chest instead of my diaphragm. So what? What does that do okay. to me? Yeah. So we can kind of take it system by system. We're okay. going to go with the most obvious one first, and that's simply just the size of the breath you can take, Okay. How much air you can, uh, or how much you can exchange gases. Okay. Okay. So your yep. lungs, most of your lungs are down low. They're okay. kind of down near where the diaphragm is. And in fact, in the back, they go down really low and just the very top of your lungs is pretty, are pretty small. That's kind of up near your collarbones. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of blood in our lungs. All the blood sits in the bottom where gravity takes it. Okay. So that's where we're going to get the most gas exchange, right? Oxygen and carbon dioxide. That's what we often think about when we think about breathing. We think of gas exchange, which is really important, but it's like one of many, many pieces of breathing. So first of all, for breathing functionally in the nose, diaphragm first, chest second, shoulder stay still. Those are the 10 words of functional breathing. I'm going to go through okay. those later. Cool. But if we're doing that, we're pulling air down into the bases of the lungs, which means we're getting better gas exchange. Okay. And in addition to that, I'm not using much energy. Your diaphragm is incredibly efficient because of these slow twitch muscle fibers. So if we're breathing with it most and first, we're using less energy and getting more bang for our buck. Now that on its own makes the argument for why an athlete would want to breathe diaphragm first. But when we start expanding what it does, your breathing touches every system. So as the diaphragm is pulling downward and kind of pumping up and down, up and down, it's mechanically massaging and percussing your guts. So it's actually mm. pumping your stomach and beginning the process of digestion while simultaneously keeping stomach contents in place. One of the most uh, sneaky sort of signs of dysfunctional breathing are problems with your GI, like acid reflux, cramping, constipation, diarrhea, because mm. we're missing this mechanical thing that's always pumping. I used to get these calls in so, the ICU where I'd be, I'd be in the ICU and they'd say, hey, come up to fifth floor because Mr. So-and-so is waiting to discharge home after surgery. He just hasn't taken a poop yet. <laughs> and so I'd go up there and I'd start talking to this person and you know, we'd basically get into the basics of their functional breathing. And about halfway through, as they'd shift from breathing upward with their shoulders, neck and chest to breathing down first, diaphragm first, they'd be like, uh, I, I got to go poop. Uh, and occasionally they'd be like, I just pooped. Can somebody help clean this up? And that's right. thankfully, you know, that's the goal, right? I was like the poop whisperer of the hospital. But that's, so, I think that's fascinating because what you're telling me is it's not even the, it's, it's the mechanics of the breathing that's actually having an impact on your digestion. Not even the breath itself, right? It's not the, even the yeah. air. It's the, it's the diaphragm, the movement of that. Yep. And that's just really interesting because it's almost like, it's not even the breathing, so to speak, that we're talking like about. Like the, the respiration, like the gas exchange. Right, 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 right. See? It has nothing like to we, do with we that. We really yeah. don't even know, like we humans, I say we, 
we don't really know how to break down all these different pieces to it because we never even thought of this, right? Yeah. So yeah. It, go, it goes even further. I can't, this, welcome to my little world, right? I can't stop talking about my favorite thing, which is your breathing. So when you're breathing, you've got diaphragm and you've also got transverse abdominis, okay? That's going to be yeah. like the exhale muscle. So this yeah. is the innermost layer of the abdominal wall. Normally, I've got all kinds of slides and stuff. And, and if I thought about it ahead of time, I would have shared my screen with you. But we'll just do this kind oh, of that's analog. Good. That's good. So diaphragm, this dome-like sheet on top. If you pick your, picture your abdomen like a ball of muscle, diaphragm's the top. The transverse abdominus wraps all the way around this ball of muscle. Okay, this is the innermost layer of the abdominal wall. It's the only layer that inserts inside the rib cage. So all the twisting and flexing and sit-ups and all that other stuff that we do for core strength, and I'm putting that right. in air quotes for a reason, misses this layer because this is the layer that wraps around like a corset. So every time I exhale, without even thinking about it, this layer squeezes inward so my diaphragm can travel back up. So mm. we get this sort of push-pull pumping action. And if you look on the inside of the body, I have this great slide that I rely on where you look inside out, you can see that these muscles interdigitate. They basically braid together. So the fibers of your transverse abdominus and your diaphragm braid together and it so clearly shows this force couplet because both of these muscles insert on your spine. Your diaphragm attaches to L1, L2, L3, and L4, and your transverse abdominus does the same thing. So when I'm breathing functionally, I'm providing postural stability. I'm actually holding myself up kind of like the cables on a bridge where they pull opposite directions to create stability and flexibility. Mm -hmm. That's what our breathing muscles do in our abdomen. When we talk about core strength. We're really talking about breathing. So it does this postural element, this force production element. That's why there's diet. Like there are studies that link diaphragm weakness and dysfunctional breathing to low back pain, to posture problems, mm -hmm. to balance problems. Chris, it's even linked with chronic ankle sprains. Isn't that nuts? Yeah, that is. Yeah. If you look at it though, it's the center of your gravity, right? If this thing is working, you are swaying less side to side. You are more balanced literally. And if we weaken that, all those things start to fall apart because we have to rely on other things. So go ahead. What, what about- like, uh, I, I'll just keep talking if you let no, me. No, so no, I'm going to pause know, and I know, let, let you reload. I know. I realize I have to kind of interject occasionally here. So what about, um, I talk a lot about nervous system and how important that is. And I, I just think it's almost like the forgotten system of illness and health in general. It's like, well, we're going to talk about our body and our brain or our mind and our body, but we're not going to talk about this thing that connects the two of those things. And we're just like, from a medical perspective, we're almost going to completely ignore it. If you went to the, mm. go to the doctor and just say, I think something's wrong with my nervous system. They just go, uh, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Right. Like, and so we seek out things like acupuncture, which I've found to be really effective, whatever it may be. But the, the question I want to ask there is the impact of breathing on your nervous system, because I've always felt like the reason why I think personally I've found breath work, and I want to get to why you don't like that term, um, okay. effective for me personally is downregulating my nervous system, like the ability right. to calm myself down and sort of hack my mind in a way, because it's like the more, I, once my nervous system is calm, my mind is able to operate better, right? Like this, this things like your limbic system, chill out and you're not in like fight or flight, all of that. So am I right there? Is there specific things that we should be doing yeah. there? And okay. hundred percent. So I liked what you said where you, you said like the medical system has forgotten about the nervous system. It's more like 
the medical system is not quite sure how to address it because <clears throat> think of a human being, right? We're these, we're these walking, talking bags of guts and bones walking around and we're basically a, a body that's there to hold up our brain, right? We eat to supply our body so that our brain can kind of keep doing things and our nervous system is designed to defend us. Mm-hmm. We are constantly seeking threats. Yep. Because, you know, you go back to like the caveman days, right? You're just walking around going, okay, that berry killed me and killed or almost killed me and killed my friend last time I ate it. And that animal is friendly. That animal's food. Like we have to sort of remember the threats and we, we don't really remember as much of the non-threats, but your breathing is a way of talking to your nervous system. Right. Yeah. Okay. So biologically speaking, human beings breathe how we feel and feel how we breathe. So if I can master my breathing... I can manage my nervous system when I need it the most. Yep. That's why one of the most common groups that I work with, I work with physicians. You know, the surgeon's going to go in and have his hand in your thoracic cavity or her hand in your abdominal cavity. I want that surgeon to be the calmest version of themselves going in there. And so do they. Yeah. Right? Because fight or flight versus kind of rest and digest. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm making it a little bit more simple than it actually is, of but course. if we're just going to call it that, fight yeah. or flight, right? We are thinking tiger. And we're feeling tiger chasing me right now. Your field of vision gets really tiny. Your blood rushes away from the center of your body out to your arms and legs so that you can run away from that threat. Your eyes get really big. You start sweating a little bit. You actually start storing fat all around your abdomen because you have to be able to survive a potentially long-term threat. So it's all about cortisol, norepinephrine, these things that are sort of released. We walk around like this, right? Like that's the telltale sign is like, you know, forehead with 400 wrinkles in the middle of it because people are like this, right? Some of my patients who are veterans describe it as a high hum where you're just kind of like, uh, all the time. Well, and, and I'll be honest. I mean, like I, my own journey with this, when people have things like tinnitus, right? Or tinnitus, however you pronounce that, um, that's not mechanical. It's not from ear damage. It's a it's a brain dysfunction, right? It's a nervous right. system thing. And I I have had this, and yeah. it took me a long time to figure out. Okay, that's that's actually my sort of limbic system on a heightened response. And I've had that where it's like buzzing or a hum. Mm-hmm. That's like, and you get all freaked out about it, which just makes things worse. You have to actually do the exact opposite and be like, it's okay, just chill out here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's exactly like you can get, so you literally hear a hum because you're so so on edge. 100%. So if we've, so taking that, so we've got the limbic system, right? You mentioned it. Brain stem is the oldest part of our brain. It's the deepest mm-hmm. part of the brain. It's the part that is responsible for temperature control, heart rate, breathing. We, we think of this as our subconscious brain, like this part that we can't control. There's this little cluster of neurons in there. It's about 180 neurons, and it's called your pre-Botzinger complex. Very fancy name for something that's basically your breathing pacemaker. Mm. It takes chemical signals, neurologic signals, mechanical signals from all these different nerves in your body, whether it's your vagus nerve, which goes all the way down to every organ in your abdomen and into your chest, or the nerves going to your shoulders, the nerves going to your heart. And it just basically takes that info and says, okay, this is how fast we're going to breathe. So you don't have to think about it. And at the same time, all these muscles we're talking about, abdomen, chest wall, and accessories, the shoulders and neck, which we haven't gotten to yet. It's the scariest part of the story. (laughs) All of these are controlled consciously. Like right now, I can be like, hey, Chris Irwin, hold your breath. Right. And you can. But you're not going to die because your subconscious breathing is going to take over because signals are going to come rushing into that pre-bots in your complex that says, too much carbon dioxide. We're drowning. Breathe. 
Right. And, and this, this is the, and the- that, and, and that's why, that's why it works because you can consciously breathe slowly, deeply, and functionally and give your brain another signal. Like, let's say you, yes. you know, you, you see something scary, right? You come upon a stressful situation in your life, no matter what it is, breathe slowly, breathe deeply, breathe functionally, and you calm yourself down because you're talking to your nervous system going, Hey, we breathe how we feel and we feel how we breathe. We're cool. We're fine. Yeah. And at the same time, if you go out for a run and just go, <sighs> you're sending the opposite signal. You might be thinking, I really need to blow off some stress. I'm going to go for a run. But you're actually just feeding your brain this stressful signal the whole yeah. time. Yep, yep. So what I do is I train people to focus on their breathing mechanics first, no matter what the activity is, whether somebody's trying to deal with a panic attack or go for a run, like run a meeting, run a marathon, have a panic attack, have a baby, live a full life, die a peaceful death. You're breathing no matter what. So you are always talking to your nervous system, whether you mean to or not. We have lost the ability to understand how to do this effectively because the people like me who are ex-pro athletes, clinical sort of, you know, hot dogs in the ICU, around all the people that are like at the top of their game, we still don't know this. Yeah, That's why I kind of dedicated my practice to the idea of putting breathing mechanics first. Yeah, And when we do that, the results are astounding. And so the, the thing I wanted to interject there is this is why I've always thought breathing was so important and interesting because you sort of hinted at it a little bit there. There's a lot of things we do with our bodies that's conscious movement. I'm moving my hands right now, my arms, my mouth, I'm mm -hmm. talking, all of that's conscious. And it pretty much doesn't happen unconsciously. My arm isn't just going to unconsciously go flying against the wall or slap something, right? Pretty much everything I do with my, my internally, yes, there's unconscious stuff going on there, right? Subconscious things going on. But but the movement Unless of- Unless I throw I, something at you. If I check yes. something at you, boom, right. that hand right. comes over. You got reflexes. Right, reflexes. But for the most part, it's a conscious thing. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens unconsciously, digestion, my heart beating. And that stuff, I can't really consciously directly control. I mean, and the the, the thing that go the in between there is breathing because boom. it's something that happens automatically. Like if I'm just sitting here, I'm going to breathe and I don't have to think about it and it just happens and it's completely subconscious. But to your point, I can also very consciously control it that I can then indirectly control my heart rate or control my digestion like you're talking about or, or make it improved, right? Like make it better. And so that's why it's such a it's such a, I've always found it to be such a unique category for that, mm -hmm. for those reasons, right? It's like this thing that it does both. Like it's going to, it's going to happen. Like if you do nothing, it's going to happen. You're going to go to sleep at night and you're still going to breathe, right? Like yep. you're not doing anything there, but you can do so much to control it, slow it down, hold it. You can like hold it until you pass out too, right? Like you can do that sure. type of stuff. Um, well, anyway. Here's what's crazy. You, your conscious breathing trains your subconscious breathing. Yes. Right. Right. As yep. few as 20 or 30 breaths per day taken consciously influence the other 20,000 that you take. So and I've watched this kind of chip away with people because we don't really choose our breathing mechanics. And because we don't have a lot of understanding of it, we don't really know what we're doing. We're basically just walking around just breathing. Yeah. And it's kind of this reflection of our nervous system. 
So all the shit that we've been through is going to, I don't know if you're bleeping things out. I think cool with that. You can say um, shit, fuck, whatever you want. Okay, cool. I love saying shit. I love saying fuck. <laughs> all right. So all the shit that you've been through in your life shows up in your breathing because it shows up in your nervous system. Yeah. And yes. breathing is perfectly positioned to be really hard to talk about because number one, it is personal, like we said. Number two, it's anatomically hidden. It's not like my arm or my leg. I can like look and see it all the time. And like, I have to like look down to see my breathing structures and it's hidden under my clothes. Mm. So we don't really see a lot except for when we get to the shoulders, which I'll tell you about. And it's, it's also this area where there's a lot of shame and guilt and fear wound into it, right? The yeah. abdomen, the chest wall, this is like what people hide all the time because of body image and the patriarchy and all this other stuff. And it's hidden because of the way we talk about it as a group, as a species. We're basically making it harder and harder to talk about. Like, let's take the word diaphragm. First of all, diaphragm, hard to spell, <laughs> hard yes. to pronounce, yeah. right? It's got a pH, it's got a GM, it's really G weird. Yep. And it's hard to locate, like we said, it's in the chest wall, but it's a part of the abdomen. And we even named a prophylactic device after the diaphragm right. and then recalled it. So like, come on, like we say everything we can do to not say it. Like that's why people say belly breathing because they feel awkward saying diaphragm. Yeah, true. So we want to avoid this, right? We want to just kind of skirt around it. Just breathe, give you a quick little thing. So that's my whole thing. It's like 10 words. Your breathing is amazing. 10 words describe it. Can you go in the nose? Oh, diaphragm sorry. first, chest second, shoulder stay still. We've nailed diaphragm first. We've talked a little bit about chest. We're going to get to the nose and we'll get to the shoulder. So before we get ahead. to that, just, just to close out the initial thing about the sort of course you went to, I just want to know kind of, you don't have to go into every single detail, but kind of the basics of what they might've taught you. And then you're somebody who um, I consider a breathing expert and you kind of, I think you sort of refer to yourself that way too. Is that something that's licensed out. And by the way, I don't, I don't think you have to be licensed to be an expert at all. Like, yeah. don't get me wrong here. I'm big believer in you have a lot of experience that makes you an expert in something or certainly can't, uh, doesn't not necessarily, um, but, but is there like, were there a bunch of courses you went to, or was this just like trial and error working on your own, a course here, something like that? I'm just kind of curious. So this course yeah. and you know, the basics were spelled out pretty fast. Your diaphragm is built to move first. Your chest wall is built to move second. Your shoulders are not helping things. So we want to kind of turn those off for the most part. Mm -hmm. That's the basics of functional breathing. And that can be taught to anybody. Um, there are not specifically like certifications in this stuff because yep. it's kind of the wild west. Yep. Yep. You know, okay. like I, 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 I am well aware of, of some of the practices that exist um, just in my local zone here in central Oregon of what breath work is. There's a yeah. guy here that does breath work that'll certify you as a certified breath work instructor for $2,000. And right. we'll get more to what that entails. But what is a physical therapist? Doctor of physical therapy is a functional movement expert. We are musculoskeletal neurologic experts. We understand patterns, we understand subtleties, and we understand the big picture of how it all integrates. Even we have missed this whole thing of breathing as a whole, right? That's yeah. kind of my mission is like change this whole thing. Yeah. But if there's one group that can be trusted to sort of clear up the language, right? Decrease the confusion. That's us. That's PTs. And so what I did was I kind of went home with this idea in mind of, oh my God, you know, when I left for this trip, I was, 
I kind of thought I was hot shit. I mean, I thought I was really knew what I was doing and everything around me backed that up, right? Scoreboard. ICU length of stay went down in a, a whole day over a year. Like people are getting better. Everybody tells me how great I'm doing. Just breathe, go and learn about breathing. Oh my God, I've gotten this thing wrong and I've been harming people because mm. I would coach you to breathe dysfunctionally. And if you go home and do that more, that's going to have downstream consequences. But what happened was I got a patient. I had a patient that like the universe just put her in front of me because I knew I was like, I have to start with breathing. I can't watch another person breathe dysfunctionally and know that it's happening and not intervene. Yeah. So I really need to start there. But who the hell's going to listen to me? I don't know what I'm doing. That's what I thought in my mind anyway, right? The imposter is real. Yeah. But I met this woman named Patricia and Patricia was 36 and she has stage four breast cancer. She's going home on hospice tomorrow. That's usually not a PT diagnosis, right? PT is about like rehab and get strong and rehabilitate and get, get back to you. Home on hospice is I want to be comfortable, right? This is I'm embracing the comfort in the end of my life. But I watched her struggling in her bed with five liters of oxygen in her nose, which is the maximum amount you can have in a little nasal cannula. And she is just panting and she's just crouched by herself. Like it's not like she's doing something. And I swallowed all this imposter and I went in there and I spent like 90 minutes getting her to talk about, feel, see, and use her breathing differently. It's a process that I call nudging the system now, but this was the beginning of it, patient number one. And I didn't even really know if it worked that well. She was able to get out of bed. We, we spent some time in the mirror getting her to kind of put this whole picture together, but I left sort of not wondering how it went. When I came back the next day, she said, Andy, what we did yesterday made me feel better than anything has in the last five years. I want to do this for the rest of my life. And I started my practice that day. Mm. And I watched her over the next seven months decrease her supplemental oxygen needs. You know, five liters down to four to three to two down to one down to room air. Her cancer is getting worse, but she's breathing better. And not only that, but she's getting out of bed on her own. She's climbing the stairs. She'd go outside and watch her son ride his bike. And the same tools that allowed her to be able to move more also served her at the end of her life. You know, nobody wants to die like this. <sighs> right. Right? Yeah. So when I saw this, I was able to outweigh that imposter. Say, all right, may maybe you do have something that's, that's useful here. Maybe if you start with this, it's relevant. And the second patient was a chest wall injury. And the third patient was this. And the fourth patient was that. And I'm a few thousand patients into this where every single human that's come to me who is curious or motivated or suffering, <clears throat> if they can get 10 words, they can begin to reverse this negative cycle because dysfunctional breathing, right? I'm going to kind of paint like a little circle here. Dysfunctional breathing leads to chronic stress, physical, chemical, mental, emotional, and spiritual stress at the same time. That leads to inflammation, our body's natural defensive response to any threat. Inflammation, continue on. Now we get to worse healing, worse recovery, worse immunity, and weakness. We actually get weaker in the muscles that we overuse in the neck, chest, and shoulders, and weakness in the muscles that we underuse like the diaphragm, which leads to a poor performance of some sort. I can't move the way I want to. My sleep, my GI, my sex life, my mood, whatever. But that poor performance is really an emotional experience, right? Shame, guilt, and fear. We breathe how we feel and we feel how we breathe. When we're breathing dysfunctionally, it's shame and guilt and fear. 
shame that I'm like not who I used to be or who I could be guilt that I don't know, maybe I have something to do with it and I don't know how to fix it and fear that it's getting worse, not better. Yeah. And those emotions are linked with anger and anger leads to more chronic pain and chronic pain leads to more dysfunctional breathing. And if we were like looking at a visual right here, this isn't just a linear circle. It's a spider web where each of the stops along the way feeds the other one. Mm. And what we say to people is just breathe so they can actually make it worse because our shoulders, this is where, this is where we get into the shoulders, right? This is going to blow your mind. So your accessory muscles, that's the pecs, everything on your scapula, everything in your neck and shoulders. These are the accessory muscles. They're the ones that we sort of use just to kind of help. Mm -hmm. Specifically, we're talking about two, okay? The upper trapezius, that's going to be my shoulder shrugging muscle. And the sternocleidomastoid, that's going to be my head turning, blind spot checking yep, muscle. Got it. Those two muscles are unique in your body. They are the only two muscles below your face that don't connect to your spinal cord. Mm. They go directly to your brainstem. So not only are they really fast and really wasteful, right? These are the fastest muscles because they go right to your brain. And they're wasteful because each of my arms weighs like 9% of my body. So every time I raise my shoulders, I'm lifting 18% of my body weight, even if it's a little bit. And I'm expanding my chest less than 1%. So it's like tons of resources for not a lot of gain. They're really painful because if I overuse these muscles, I pull my shoulders up and down. So I get neck pain and shoulder pain and headaches, but I also get thoracic pain because I'm not expanding my chest outward. I'm pulling it upward. Mm -hmm. And worse yet, I get all kinds of problems in the abdomen because my abdomen can't move that fast, right? Slower kid. So it either gets held really tightly or it gets super loose. Either way, we get back pain, hip pain, pelvic pain, incontinence, organ prolapse. So your shoulders, when you move them, it the 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 whole like connection to your brain, it's a two-way street. So I might get stress that makes my shoulders move, but if I just move my shoulders a lot, I'm bombarding my brainstem with little signals of stress and fear and pain every time I do it, right to the part that controls how fast I breathe, right? To my mm. pre-botzinger complex. So that's why this whole just breathe thing is like catastrophic for your nervous system. I mean, yeah. imagine somebody who had a stroke and you said, just walk, right? We'd yeah. never say that, but we say just breathe all the time because we don't know another way to talk about it. Yeah. And you're saying the problem is you're just telling somebody to do the, do the thing incorrectly, to keep doing it incorrectly, right? Basically. Yeah. I mean, you're doing it in a way that's not helping. Right. You know, right, I, think, right. I, think, I think language really matters. And I know, you know, you and I know each other because I was present for one of your speeches. I got to know your story a little bit. So I know that this is kind of like speaking to where you've been, but like the way we talk about it even comes down to like words like correct and incorrect. Mm. As I often say, like, hey, if you're alive, you're breathing right. Yeah, okay. You're alive. Yeah. How amazing. I've watched enough people not be alive, as have you, to know, holy shit, if you're breathing, you're breathing right. Yeah. Are you breathing functionally? That's the question. So things you'll never hear me say. You're never going to hear me say good or bad breathing, right or wrong, correct or incorrect, proper or improper. It's just functional versus dysfunctional. Is this helping or is this harming? Good. Right? Yeah. That's the difference between that. surviving and thriving. I dig that. It's funny you say that because it's the same terminology I use for thoughts because one of my things is a lot of people say 
positive, negative thoughts. They use those terms. And I'm always like, no, that's not, it's helpful or unhelpful. That's the term you should use or useful or useless, basically. Um, mm-hmm. And I got that from uh, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. That's uh, Russ Harris's book. But he talks about that. And I was like, yeah, that's right. Because if you think of it, you can have like a negative thought, something like, I'm really out of shape. And that can be helpful because that gets you into the gym and like changes your life. So is that a good thought? I think so. So is that ne- like if we if we label that as negative, well, then it's not really the right moniker there, right? Or not the right label to give to that. So I'm totally. a big fan of helpful and un- unhelpful. Same, same type of thing. Is this helping you or, or not helping you? Right. Um, can you actually two things? One is it's interesting. You talk about the shoulders. One of the things I noticed when I started really cluing into what I was doing with my body in conjunction with my mind is I would hunch my left shoulder. So anytime I was sitting anywhere, I had my I mean, I, two things. One is my my forehead would be like like this, like I was saying before. I would I really had to start consciously relaxing my forehead and just think mm-hmm. like every time you're doing this, you're giving a danger signal to your brain, basically. Same the, concept, shul- right? Those nerves go to the same area, so the shoulders and the face, same exact thing. Yeah, right. Which totally makes sense. But the shoulder thing, it's like I'd be sitting sometimes. Be I sit sitting on the toilet, and I'm like where I could kind of. Th- no distractions if I didn't have my phone with me. And I'd be like, man, my sh- my left shoulder is always hunched. And so it was just, so, you know, it's just in conjunction with what you're saying there. Like I had to kind of clue into that and be like, man, relax that. Well, and, and, your, and the other thing yourself. that's tricky is like, if you turn on the TV or you Google, take a deep breath or whatever, you know what you're going to see? Yeah. 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 Jacking their shoulders up and bringing them back down. And, and it's because it's the only part of our breathing that's visual. Yeah. Like you're not going to see my diaphragm under my shirt. Right. So we just sort of like, ah, that's it. Right. Any TV commercial has somebody taking a deep breath or like there's it's, it's, it's everywhere. So why is it that once you start seeing shoulders, you can't sit, can't unsee it. Why is it that so many of us breathe dysfunctionally? I mean, certainly we haven't evolved to to breathe dysfunctionally? Is it, is it because we're all well, s- sitting in front of a computer most of the time? Is it? We stress? kind of have evolved to breathe dysfunctionally. Okay. Now there's a great book out there that has provided tons of insight to tons of people. It's called Breath. Yep. It's by James Nestor. Yep. And it's a wonderful read. Yep. And what he points out are all these things that are kind of moving in the wrong direction evolutionarily. I'm going to kind of sort of summarize a little bit of what, what he goes through. So there's an interesting person that, uh, that he follows. So I want to make sure that I, I, I kind of get all my, all my ducks in a row here. But if, if we're looking at the human body, we've basically got our jaw, our airway, our posture, and then our breathing muscles. Those are the things that we're looking at. Yep. So what he points to is, how much we have evolved away from practices like closed mouth breathing, mm-hmm. chewing a lot, yep, and having those be staples of our life all the time. When we don't do that, we have a much softer diet now, and we also don't necessarily value nose breathing. You know, there, there's a uh, okay. So there, I'm, I'm going to get the author wrong because I'm blanking on it in my mind. In just a moment. Okay. So I'm going to blank on the author, but it's referenced in the book. 
<clears throat> it's okay. So this person wrote George Catlin. Boom. I knew I'd have it. Okay. George Catlin, this guy in the, in the 1800s is an American. He, he's living this life as a lawyer and he really has a lot of respiratory problems and he decides that I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. I want to be a painter. Follows his passion. So he goes to the American West, which is yet to be sort of pioneered and there's lots of indigenous tribes. And what he does is he spends six years painting indigenous people and he documents all these tribes, right? There's like 50 tribes that he documents and he takes in, what do they eat? What are their habits? What are their rates of disease? What do their children do? Like he takes all this stuff and he paints these beautiful pictures, most of which are still in the Smithsonian. If you go to the American History Museum, you're going to see lots and lots of paintings by George Catlin. But what he found was 50 tribes, wildly different practices, whether they ate meat or they ate corn, or they practiced this or practiced that, all of them had a documented nose-breathing practice. Where from Like on birth, purpose they did? Earth, yes, okay. from birth. By the way, like, I've okay. read Breath. I've read it yeah. twice, and I've recommended it on my on my Substack too, so I'm very familiar with the book. I don't remember it's that. It's amazing, right? Part, but. but he's got this whole thing about like babies – would be if a baby finishes oh, breastfeeding, yeah, I do remember this. what they do I is do just go yep. and just close yep. the lips, yep. right? And they would encourage their kids to keep their mouth closed. They'd position babies so that their mouth mouths were closed at night. And if you look at pictures, you're not going to see a lot of, you know, pictures of big open mouth smiling Native Americans, right? There's a lot of reasons why they're not smiling, but that's one of them. Yep. There are pictures where it shows the white man next to him with a big toothy smile and obviously a different look on, on the native people, but they valued nose breathing universally. And if you look at the skulls of those people, all of them have wide jaws and straight teeth. Right. Yep. Right. Unlike our jaws, which are going the other direction, because the more you nose breathe, the more you'll nose breathe because airflow keeps your nose open, right? That's kind of how we develop this thing. And our posture gets affected by it. And the opposite's also true. The more you mouth breathe, the more you will continue to mouth breathe because your nose keeps producing mucus. Your inflammation gets worse. So it kind of closes those passages off even more. And what happens is we start to evolve. Like our head grows forward, our jaw yeah. grows down and back, and our palate gets narrow. So that's why you get mouth breathing linked with things like crooked teeth, uh, jaw pain, airway problems, sleep apnea facial changes, you name it. So we're evolving in that direction. Plus there's other aspects like what have we been hearing forever? We've been hearing things like suck in your gut. That's a thing, right? That's kind of going away now, but generationally, generationally suck in your gut is like universal. People yeah, hold their abdomen really tightly. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got physical therapists and fitness professionals talking about core strength and tighten your core and brace your core and hold your core. All of that forcing our abdomen to be tight is a little bit like going to the gym and wanting strong biceps, picking up weights and just holding them really tightly. Yep. You would never do that, right? You'd have to like move through the whole range of motion. So when we hold our abdomens tightly, it forces us to breathe somewhere else, like with our chest or our shoulders. So our whole approach to core strength is kind of missing this key thing. My wife's a PT. Uh, she's a total boss and she's orthopedic certified specialist. Like I have so much respect for her. We had a two year fight about core strength, which is like the most PT fight to have in the world. And it's exactly that thing. I have always heard these cues in my career, hold your core, brace your core, tighten your core, set your core, draw your belly button towards your spine. That's bonkers. 
That whole bicep curl thing is totally true. We actually need to move our entire abdomen as much as possible in as many different ways as we can to develop full range of motion and strength. So we have had a little bit of a hand in our de-evolution towards dysfunctional breathing. And we got people out there running going, <sighs> and that's the norm. So if I, and because I have these mirror neurons, if I see you do it, right, you're a boss, you're an ex-Navy SEAL, you're a fit guy. If I'm in the gym and I'm going, what's he doing? Well, he's mouth breathing. Well, I'm going to do that. So we sort of display it for each other and then we lose the ability to talk about it. So it's sort of like perfectly positioned to be completely misunderstood. And it even comes down to the words that we use, right? So breath versus breathing. This is one that I feel really strongly about. And I had no idea why this meant something until I broke it down. So we already know breathing is my favorite thing to talk about, right? It's an action. It's a movement. It's the single most impactful action any human being performs. But we usually say breath. We say like, oh, I'm out of breath. Right. Short of breath. Yep. Oh, I'm losing my breath. I got to catch my breath. Uh, none of that's true because you can't be out of breath. You and I have seen what people look like. They're actually dead. That's dead. <laughs> out of breath is dead, right? And short of breath, losing my breath, it implies this thing that it's like separate, right? And if I say I have good breath or bad breath, what are we talking about? We're talking about the smell of my mouth. Yes. So that's confusing. And the worst, probably the most egregious thing is when we say the breath. You hear it a lot like the power of the breath. Like which one are we talking about? The last one I took, the next one? It implies that it is somehow separate from me. Like it's this thing that's like the breath is like hiding in the mist up there at the top of some impossibly tall staircase that I need to work to get to. So breath and work, right? Breath, no, man, you're breathing and it's your breathing and you're the only one that can, tr can control it. I mean, we could, we could intubate you again, but ultimately it's your breathing. And work, if your breathing is work, you're in trouble because hmm. you're never getting off work ever. Right. I mean, my work is breathing now and does drive me a little crazy sometimes, but I've also seen what it looks like when somebody literally has to work to breathe. We describe work as the thing we don't want to do, but we have to do like, oh, I'm really putting in the work. I got to do the work. Breathing is a privilege. It's amazing. And it's, it's a practice, but it's not breath and it's not work, right? So breathing is a movement. Breath's a noun. So just shifting patients from talking about breath to talking about my breathing begins this cycle of accountability where they understand, you know what? I control this thing. It's the only thing I control, really. It's not a pill. It's not a procedure. It doesn't have refills. It doesn't have side effects. It's not a surgery. It's literally in me all the time and it's influencing every single system in my body. I really want to understand how to talk about this thing so I can use it. So let's talk about just the basics of <clears throat> functional breathing, like what that okay. looks like. We, we already talked about diaphragmatic breathing, right? Instead of like chest or, or shoulders. So that sort of, I love that bellows analogy. I think that's a really good way to, I've never heard that before, but that's a really cool nice. way to think about it. So that nose breathing, and that, that's something I certainly learned in James Nestor's book, um, mm -hmm. now luckily for me, I've always, at least as far as I know, been a nose breather. I, when I, when I consciously looked at myself, I was like, no, I don't breathe out of my mouth really. Like my mouth is closed. I sleep with my mouth closed naturally. So I'm kind of lucky. 
My wife is the exact opposite. So she tapes her mouth shut at night to keep Mm -hmm. her mouth shut. And that's really helped her a lot. Um, And so those were some things out of that book. But but what else? Like just before we get to sort of exercises, so to speak, just like everyday breathing, right? Okay. What else? So I liked what you said about like, I've got a nose breathing practice. And a lot of people got that from Nestor's book, like, whoa, nose breathing is really important. I'm going to go nose breathe. And so they go out and they start nose breathing or they go out and start exercising and then remember halfway through, I better nose breathe. And they can't do it because it's really hard. hard. Yeah, it is. And they give up. The reason it's hard is because of the underlying mechanics. You can try to nose breathe all you want, but if you don't have the rest of the system, basically from your neck down, supporting that, it's not going to work. Yeah, It's going to be almost impossible and you're going to be really frustrated and then you're going to give up on it. So that's where you get those 10 words, okay? In the nose, diaphragm first, chest second, shoulders stay still. So we got to start by finding your diaphragm. Now, what we want to do is we're going to take two fingers and find your sternum. Okay. Okay. So go ahead and put a couple of fingers on your sternum. And here's what I want you to do. Travel down your sternum until it disappears and you get to that squishy spot, kind of like right where you got the wind knocked out of you. Yep. So with your fingers there, What I want you to do is execute a couple of little doggy sniffs, kind of like a dog just sticks his head out the door. The first thing in the morning goes, yep. Okay. Little, Yeah. Tiny sniffs. And what you're trying to do is sense your diaphragm moving without your chest. Mm -hmm. I watch roomfuls of people do this and immediately they start going, (laughs) their whole chest moves, right? So we sniff real lightly until we can find that diaphragm moving on its own. Now we switch from a dog sniff to a human sniff. So try to take a nice smooth human inhalation right Mm -hmm. there where you feel it move to that spot and then flow up your chest. Mm -hmm. Once we do that, take the fingers instead of poking in that little middle spot, now just lay them softly and flatly along the lowest ribs so that your pinkies are kind of near your lowest ribs. Fingers and palms are all against your your body. So you're flush against your body. Okay. And now take that same smooth breath in and feel not only expanding into the front, but expanding into your palms as well. Okay. Can you feel that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. If you can feel it, that's the first step, right? Okay. You can talk about it. What is my diaphragm? Two, I can feel it. Three, we want you to see it. So if you can stand in front of a mirror or if you're here at our clinic or, or working with us through telehealth, what we do is we capture your breathing with video mm. and then we play it back for you. Okay. But we do it after we educate you on all this stuff. So we get to know you, teach you about breathing, and then show you your breathing. And you'll see, oh my God, that's what I'm doing 20,000 times a day. And then all it is is a matter of, okay, let me stand in front of the mirror and see if I can match what I see with what I want to do. Some people can do it really easily. I have lots of people that just get this information just from these educational sessions alone. I do a lot of workshops and they come back a year later and they say, hey, you know, I saw you at this workshop and you've lowered my blood pressure 40 points or you've helped me sleep or you've helped me this. I never even saw them or put hands on. But some people have a harder time, right? We're talking about your nervous system. So patterns in breathing can be really ingrained. So spending a little time feeling your breathing, seeing your breathing, that helps, but really it's about using it. What we want you to do now that you've got your breathing kind of moving in this functional way, diaphragm first, chest second, shoulder stay still, is go use it. So you take a walk, but instead of thinking walking and breathing, it's breathing first and walking or breathing and running, breathing and doing the dishes, breathing and going to sleep, Literally everything requires breathing. So you take one functional activity a day and you make it breathing first. You see how deeply and slowly can I breathe while I walk the dog, Mm, right? Yep. 
Now that's all inhale. We haven't really talked about exhale, but exhale, I'll just sort of annotate it. It's yeah. really just about slowing down. You can okay. slow down with your lips or your glottis, but as long as you're breathing in functionally and just trying to slow it down a little, the net net is that your respiratory rate ends up getting really lower and, and a lot deeper. So you have more carbon dioxide on board and you're sending these helpful signals to the brain. And over time, your body gets used to more carbon dioxide. If we did an experiment right, right now where you held your breath, that's what would go up, right? It wouldn't be oxygen. Oxygen is kind of like the thing that gets all the credit, but CO2 and oxygen are the thing that have to balance each other out. So when we breathe too fast, or when we breathe dysfunctionally, we're blowing off too much carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. And that has all kinds of negative ramifications in the body. Do we want to breathe sort of inhale, exhale, the same amount of time, ideally? Like if it's five seconds in, five seconds out? Like, is there an ideal sort of, I mean, we've talked about this. We talked about this, the sort of perfect breathing thing, right? Mm. That sort of five and a half breaths a minute, five and a half seconds in, five and a half seconds out. I know mm. you said that James Nestor has kind of maybe gone away from that, but regardless, yeah, so the is there's sort of a, like an ideal amount of time per okay. at Good rest, question. obviously not like heart yeah. rate. So, so PTs, right? We're all about functional. Yep. Um, function supersedes pretty much everything else in my life. Mm-hmm. You, the slowest breath you can take in functionally is about three seconds. I mean, you can breathe in more slowly than that, but it's really hard to do because inhaling, like we said, disproportionately small part of your life, right? That's about two seconds and that's a functional inhale. Maybe I could stretch that to three or four, but I don't really need to count because my exhale, all I'm thinking is slow it down. Functionally, what do you need to do? It's all about just getting it to be deep and slow. So I've done this with patients before where I'll say, okay, I want you to really focus on like counting in, counting out, doing that, even though I have a real problem with counting, which we'll talk about. And they can't do it, right? It just doesn't fit because it's awkward and it's hard and that's what they're focused on. They're actually using their sympathetic drive to count. And what is obsessive compulsive disorder? The inability to basically stop counting or counting the times that you do something or stop doing things a certain amount of time. Like every human being has this propensity to count and it's not serving us. There's a really interesting study that looks at the effect of deep, slow breathing. Okay. So they have two groups. One is deep, slow breathing with a visual monitor that's counting their inhalations and exhalations. And the other is deep, slow breathing, stare at the dot on the wall. Both groups had improvements in their cardiovascular performance, right? Blood pressure goes down, heart rate goes down, circulation improves when you slow your breathing. But only one group had a reduced skin conductance. Basically, they could feel hot and cold temperature changes less severely, Hmm. meaning their sympathetic drive is turned down, right? They're not in that fight or flight response. And it was the group that was told to stare at a dot on the wall because you need vigilance to count. It actually takes a lot of energy and focus to keep counting. So by telling somebody to do perfect breathing, like you were talking about, or box breathing or any of this stuff, it's not that it's bad, like it's better than nothing, but it's actually not doing as much good as if we said, here's your anatomy, here's how to breathe in, here's how to slow down, just keep going slow, Mm. keep going slower. Everything you do, go slower, go slower, go slower. So this is why... I'm glad you're saying all this because this is why the various breathing exercises that I've recorded for people, I take away the counting aspect because to that exact point, 
So if you, if you haven't heard any of these, you, you can check them out. Most of them are on YouTube. I just did one that was, I didn't put it on YouTube, which was just a, it was literally like taking a breath and just like slowing it slow, slow, like as slow as you could get it basically. Yep. <clears throat> which isn't something you want to do indefinitely. But for me, it was, it's a nervous system calming thing, right? Like it's just, mm -hmm. like, just calm your nervous system down. Anyway. Um, well, I guess, hang on. Why wouldn't you want to do it indefinitely? Uh, well, you can't do it indefinitely, I guess. It's like in terms of a focused exercise, like, like just. So that's my thing. I think we're thinking of breathing as a breathing exercise. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Somebody asked me once, I was in a chairlift line recently and they're like, there's a mental health professional and, and we got to talking about what I do. And she goes, Oh, what breathing exercises do you do? I said, well, I know, I know what you're one, saying. I know, you know, I know what you're saying here. I, my counter to that would be, and we can get into this about the breath work moniker. My, my counter would be, I go to the gym once a five, six times a week and I work out hard for about an hour. And that is so I'm more, my, I'm physically fit the other 23 hours of the day. Right. And I'm right. healthier then. And so I completely agree with you that we want to be breathing correctly and more function. Sorry, not correctly, more functionally. Okay. Um, I got to get used to the right terminology, <laughs> more functionally the rest of the time, like all of the time. Right. However, I do think that you can do exercises that help make that happen, right? That make us, and some of it is just bringing your conscious awareness to breathing for a very specific amount of time. So yeah. you can feel what that's like, because there's a lot of these things, just like learning, I don't know, learning a technique, uh, whether it's swimming or running correctly or lifting correctly, you mm -hmm. don't know what it feels like until you feel it, until yeah, you do it, until you do it. And, so, and then you go, oh, now I, now I feel what that's like, right? Like yeah. the shoulder thing for me, until I realized I was doing that, I was just doing it. And, to, and, then, I sure. had to, and then I had to be like, put that down, put that down, put that down. Mm -hmm. And even that mm -hmm. is, and it's, that alone is a little exercise that I'm doing of like, okay, Correct. until it becomes natural, right? And so I think there are, and then there's, there's other things, obviously, like if you want to go the Wim Hof route, there are breathing techniques you can do to like warm your core temperature up if you're going to like submerge sure. yourself in ice water and all that shit, right? Sure. Now, I'm and, not and, I'm not a big fan of his stuff specifically for nervous because I just think so much is like downregulate your nervous system. A lot of his stuff is mm. almost upregulating it. Not all of it, but I found some of that stuff actually made me worse some of the times where ah, I had to kind of go the, okay. uh, the so, other route. So exactly right. What you're talking about is this, this idea. So what's Wim Hof famous for saying? Just breathe, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's what, what he's saying. Says I don't know. Enough to, okay. Okay. I mean, look, Wim is a really important guy. He's sure, done a lot of, of things to get people aware that breathing is powerful and, and experimenting with messing with their nervous system. Yep. And what he is doing is in a sense, up, up regulating your nervous system. But okay. So the two main tenets for those that don't know about, you know, Wim Hof, he's a, a, a Dutch guy with a really interesting personal story um, about sort of crushing loss in his life and having to sort of resurrect himself out of it and using breathing techniques to sort of right his nervous system. And then ultimately took them, you know, kind of to the nth degree. Like he's got yes. all kinds of stuff where he shows like it boosts my immunity and it's impressive stuff. I highly suggest people read his books and give it a look. And just breathe is problematic. Yeah. So what somebody does with these different breathing exercises still has ramifications on their nervous system, whether they're in the gym lifting or 
trying to hold their breath as long as they can or submerging themselves in cold water up to their neck or doing whatever, those same 10 words still apply. So what I want to say to Wim Hof is, hey, here's 10 words. It just doesn't sound quite as sexy when you say in the nose, diaphragm, first chest, second shoulder, stay still, motherfucker. It doesn't work that well. Yeah. Um, But when somebody uses those tools, what they're able to do is they're able to give their system a calming signal despite that upregulation of the nervous system. Mm, Okay. So essentially, if you... We'll just talk about breath holds, okay? Because breath holds are kind of a hot topic. And actually, it's one of the things that I, I wanted to talk to you about because it's been probably the most influential tool with some of my uh, patients who are veterans. Mm. So static breath holds, okay? This is the process of teaching somebody. What I, what I teach, this is how I teach it, okay? I teach somebody to, once they've got their functional breathing down, this is maybe the third or fourth visit, something like that, when they're functionally breathing and feeling confident at most of the time. I teach them how to hold their breath as long as they can with their air all the way out. Yep. Okay. So blow all your air out. You're not moving anymore. You're not using any muscles to hold air in. Most of the time we hold our breath, it's in. But if you blow it all the way out, you are very relaxed. And in that relaxed state, you can calm yourself. And what will happen is the carbon dioxide starts to go up. And it actually goes up a bit faster when you're holding your breath out. Mm. So as the CO2 goes up, your stress levels start to go up, right? Those signals to the pre-Botzinger complex, the brainstem start kind of going nuts and you start feeling all this panic and fear. And yet you're okay, right? If I come up to you and I put my hand over your nose and mouth and I'm like, all right, I'm going to suffocate Chris. That's pretty stressful. Cortisol, norepinephrine through the roof, right? That's very stressful event. It's the most stressful thing you can go through. I don't care how stressful your day is. Nothing's more stressful than drowning. So The difference is if I do it to myself, if I hold my breath on purpose, not in water, laying flat on a flat surface where I'm safe, I do get cortisol, I do get norepinephrine, but I also get this hit of dopamine, which is really important. Mm. So we start kind of getting in this loop of like, wow, that was hard to hold my breath that long and stay calm. And then it's really about how do I breathe back in? Because we're talking to our nervous system. So let's say I hold my breath for like a minute and then I breathe in, in my mouth, shoulders, chest, like you'd imagine somebody who just drowned. Yep. I just undid all that, right? I just basically told my nervous system, there's a tiger in the room and you're totally scared and it's not good, right? So I accomplished nothing. But if instead I use those 10 words and I just held my breath as long as I can and instead I breathe in with my nose, diaphragm first, chest second, shoulders stay still. I basically just said, you're okay. You're fine. You can handle this. Mm. And because we breathe how we feel and we feel how we breathe, I'm calming myself down in the most vulnerable position I could be in. So Mm. we do this three times. That's what I usually recommend. I mean, if you can do it twice, that's enough. Once is not enough. You want to get that second round because let's say you hold your breath as long as you can the first time. You probably hold it for like 20 or 30 seconds. The next round, it's going to be longer. Right. And And the next round is going to be longer because your CO2 tolerance is constantly changing. And that's that Wim Wim Hof technique that has that where it's like you do kind of 30 quick inhale, exhales, and then you blow everything out. Well, again, counting, right? So I throw out the counting and I throw out the quickness too because that quickness is like, "Ah, regulate. There's nothing functional about that. Yeah. Okay. So what I teach people to do is in that intervening period, instead of breathing 30 breaths and counting and doing it fast, put on a song, 
Breathe as deeply and functionally as you can for that song. And at the end of the song, you're going to hold your breath again. Okay, so this is great. So again, I want to get back to these these things I do because I, I just oh. think it's different and I haven't seen it anywhere else, which is I agree with you. I didn't like trying to count while I'm doing this breath work. To me, it was like distracting and it was like, well, is that really four seconds? Is that too fast? I don't know exactly how long four seconds is or five seconds or whatever it is. And so time I, is artificial anyway, so who well, knows? Yeah, we just made it up. So. Uh, I mean, time is a thing, but, but distinct, like breaking it up right. into specific right. segments. Well yeah, we just made that shit up. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so what I did was I started making tracks where if it was, let's say a, a, for the sake of argument, a perfect breathing thing, like five and a half seconds in five, five and a half seconds out, I put a music track down where it was just two tones, like basically perfect fifths of just like C and F or C and G or whatever it is. With, with sort of like synth type, something that would make you like, the, the, the sound makes you sort of like feel, ah, that's that's yeah. really like heartwarming, right? And then I just put a, a beat under it, like a 4-4 four, four beat, mm -hmm. and everyone knows what a 4-4 four, four beat sounds like. So it's not a beat per second necessarily, but all you have, whatever it is, it's breathe in for four beats, and then the tone changes and breathe out for four beats. And so mm -hmm. all, it's almost like your dance, your breath is dancing with the music, right? And so you don't have to, think anymore so i did that with that i did a box breathing one where it was four tones it was like four chords it was just a i think it was just like a one five six four or whatever it was um same thing and then i did this one where it's slowing you down too so the beat slowly gets slower and slower and slower and slower but the whole time all you're doing is just breathe in on the one tone with the four beats breathe out with the other don't have to count nothing you just it just becomes like a thing where you just breathing totally. along the music, you know, and then you hopefully are getting a little bit of, um, sort of like a dopamine hit just from the, the way music can kind of make you feel right. And yeah. So, so I want to applaud you because you are a pulmonot. You are exploring <laughs> new things with your breathing. You're coming up with new things that are innovative. That's really cool. The, 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 so here's an interesting thing. Human beings have what's called a self-selected gait speed. We all walk at the speed that our body decides to walk. Mm. Like you just sort of let Chris Irwin loose on the streets of New York City with nobody there. He's going to walk a certain speed. Now, maybe it's influenced by people around you or what you've got going on that day or whatever. But we have sort of a self-selected speed. Breathing is a little more complex than that. We have sort of a self-selected speed, but it's also influenced by how much carbon dioxide can we tolerate? How much is on my brain that day? How am I feeling right now? So it's, it's unfortunately why counting and beats and a set concrete number, no matter what it is, kind of falls short for somebody inherently. Yeah. And it's why the cue to don't count, slow it down, keep slowing down. Well, right? so that's or, or breathe as deeply and slowly as you want in that song. And and what I bet we'd find, I bet if we if we did the experiment, right? If we had identical twins and we had one do the timed breathing and one do breathe as slowly and deeply as you want, my guess is their performance would be largely the same. Yeah. If not, maybe a little bit better on the side that was told, don't worry about the counting, breathe however you want, because that person is now actually letting go of feeling like they need to keep up with something else or somebody else. Yeah. You yep. Know? Yep. Inhaling for four out, like it's, it is good, it's helpful, and you can't count when you're on the trail. You can't count when you're having a panic attack. You kind of need, I mean, you can, but ultimately it's sort of 
potentially defeating the purpose, right? It's, yes, right, right. Well, what yeah. I the, so so the, you're moving in the right direction, and I really love the combination of music. Well, and so again, though, like I, I talked about when I when I spoke to your group, is to me, it's I do those things on a one week basis. So it's like try this for a week, and it's always about mm-hmm. like does hey if you like this, use it. If you don't, toss it. Right. Like the idea is like, Hey, I'm not necessarily telling you, you have to breathe this way, or this is the perfect breathing thing. It's like, and I get feedback too. I had one guy who loved the Wim Hof stuff. He was like, this is the best thing ever. And I'm like, great. And then I have other people that were like, Hey, have you ever found that the Wim Hof stuff really makes for, if you're, uh, have like a chronic kind of nervous system condition, it makes it worse. I'm like, yep, I found that too. So again, it's all about the individual. And I just want to put out things like, try this, try this, try this, right? Like give this a shot. And even on the slow breathing thing, I was like, hey, get this to, you might find this starts to get too long for you. Hey, just stop wherever you feel like that's my stopping spot and just do that. The other thing I like about some of those things, especially if I can take away the counting thing where it's like, just feel, right? Like feel Mm -hmm. this is, I just think again, it sort of, it brings your conscious awareness to your breath in a way that you might not any other way. And you get to notice things that you might not have noticed otherwise. Like for me, as an example, I'll start to notice I'm like herky jerky in spots where it's like, Mm -hmm. like I can in the middle of a breath and I'm like, Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Like, can I smooth that out? Right. Like, can I, that kind of thing I think is really, really valuable. Um, I I love what you said there because, so there's this quote from Brene Brown that sticks out in my head. Oh yeah. The very first step to solving a problem is naming it. Yeah, right. You can't solve a problem unless you name it. And so getting people to start paying attention to their breathing, that might identify the problem or identify part of it. But for me, I want to take it a step further. I want to name the anatomy. I want to Mm -hmm. give that person understanding so that they're like, I know what's going on. I know how to work this tool. I understand this thing because that's really the difference between just like experience and something that they can take with them. You know, so much of what's out there when it comes to breath work is an experience. I mean, I'll I'll share this with you because I think it might be reminiscent of something that you've been through. I listened to your double episode where you uh, you were interviewing and talking first about mindfulness, meditation, yoga, and then the second half talking about psychedelics. So you mentioned how you kind of went to this breathwork thing. I've only been to one breathwork class properly in my life. And I'm using class very loosely because I didn't yep. learn. Nobody taught me anything. Okay. Yep. I, I was in an article with a gentleman who was local and, and the article was on breathwork and breathing. And I said, well, I'd love to be in that article. I'm breathing. I'm not breathwork. And so they came and they sort of saw what I'm about. And I gave them this long, deep dive on mechanics. I mean, the interviewer, she's like, I've, I've never been here for so long in an interview. Like we could just keep going. And then I went to this person's class because I invited the guy here. He blew me off, but he invited me to his class. So I went and there are 300 people in a ballroom at a conference center and everybody's laying down and he's got some lights and there's a guy on a mic and he has you breathing like this (gasps) in your mouth, diaphragm first, then chest and dropping it out. In, out, in, out. And he's just going faster, 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 more, 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 more. Trust me. Trust yourself. Blah, blah, blah. Like literally yelling at people for 29 minutes. Yeah. And, you know, people are having big, powerful experiences because they are jacking their nervous system so far beyond 
uptrained, that they're seeing ghosts, they're seeing dead people, they're feeling things in their body that they're not used to feeling, their arms are contorting because their electrolytes and all their sort of neurotransmitters are getting out of whack. And yeah, I, I mean, I for sure, I was there and I there's my dead cousins and I can see them and I had that experience. And at the same time, I'm also Andy the scientist going, this is totally unsafe, right? There, I, I, there's a reason I had to sign my life away four times and I'm really scared about that lady who's in her 70s who's over there, yeah. scared she's going to have a stroke. But then when I left, he basically just bangs a gong and has everybody yell at the top of their lungs and then they leave. Yeah, And there's no like explaining what happened to you, integration. You know, if I gave you a psychedelic drug and said, here, just take this and then never saw you again, that's kind of irresponsible. Yeah. So I left and I felt like I saw a car accident. My whole body's jittering. And, you know, I do have this supercharged breathing system. So I probably took it pretty far because, hey, I did what I was told to do by the instructor. And for three months, I suffered from cluster headaches after that. Oh, wow. Now, I don't know if you know about cluster headaches, but unfortunately, they're a rotten thing. Like I had migraines as a kid. They morphed into cluster headaches as an adult. Cluster headaches are also known as suicide headaches because the rate for people with cluster headaches is 20 times higher than it is for the general population to commit suicide. Imagine getting the same 10 out of 10 head splitting headache in the same part of your brain every single day in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day, no matter what you did. Yeah. So I had that after my breathwork experience. And you know, I'm not saying that everybody's going to have that, but there's a lot of potential harm that can be done with breathing. What that class taught me is that, you know what, this thing that you think has no negative side effects kind of does Yeah. if you do it irresponsibly. Yeah. And, and the same can be said, like, I've had people come to me with Wim Hof experience where they're like, yeah, I've been doing this. I've been going to the cold water and my toes are black and I don't understand why. And it's because breathing dysfunctionally instead of supercharging your circulatory system makes it worse. Yeah. So really it's, it's on all of us, all of us breathing, all of us purveying breathing to speak in a way that is functional and helpful. Like I want to universalize the language so that you could go in there in that breathwork experience, do the same exact thing with your mouth shut and you would get almost all the same benefits, maybe not quite the extreme nature of it, but you also wouldn't be dehydrated. You also wouldn't have headaches. You'd probably help every system in your body instead of harming it. Yeah. So that's, that was sort of a tangent, but no, no, no. I, I thought I, that, I that think, would be relevant. I think it's, um, so like that, that breathe, the breathing technique that we did on that experience when we did the psychedelics was hol holotropic, was holotropic right? breathing. Yeah. 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 And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I don't consider it I wouldn't call it functional breathing at all. I would call it sort of, it sort of had a, I think it at the moment in that context had a very specific purpose for the sort of mystical sure. or whatever you want to call it, sure. that aspect of what we were doing. Um, and it was, it was interesting, right? I think what, what it was interesting about it was, yeah, it definitely highlighted like, holy shit, I can make my body feel a very, very unique and different way just by uh -huh. breathing in a very yeah. unusual way. Um, but I definitely wouldn't recommend it for, for everyday practice. Um, what about for running? Because that's basically what we're doing. Yeah. So let me ask you that. Let's, <laughs> let's, there's a couple other things I want to get to here. One of them is that, so uh, after I read Breath, I, I put in some serious effort behind trying to nose breathe during exercise. And mm -hmm. I certainly found that I could rowing like at a sort of aerobic pace, if you want to call it that. I could do that. I could row a 5K, 20 minutes at a sub two minute, 500, 
you know, pretty good pace and keep my mouth shut the whole time. And it was like, wow, pretty relaxed. Actually. It was like, at first it was a little weird where I'm like, okay, that's a little challenging. I'm not used to this, but I sort of settled into it. However, if I'm going to the gym, to my local CrossFit gym and doing a red line type workout, I certainly, I I don't know if I've even tried it, but I doubt I could do it at least right now. So my question to you is, is that even possible? to, to do that? Mm. Like, can you train and is that beneficial? Like, could you train yourself so that even at like full throttle, I don't care what it is, right? Like, you know, as hard as you can go physically eight minute wrestling match, right? Only breathing out of your nose. Is that possible? Is that advisable? Is that something we should be striving towards? Everybody makes their own decisions, right? I like (laughs) to say this all the time. It's your breathing, but is it possible? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of examples. Um, you watch Shikari Richardson. She's the fastest woman in the United States. Okay. She does 100 meters, 200 meters, 400 meters, mouth shut. Go back another two decades, right? We've got Sonia Richards-Ross. She has 17 world titles, three gold medals, all with her mouth shut, 400 meters, 200 meters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Take it to the endurance people, right? One of the patients that sticks out to me the most is he's in the first like 15 patients I had because he's a PT that I worked with. Hopefully someday I'll hire him. We'll see. Um, he is an ultra runner, right? An aspiring ultra runner, college runner, starting to kind of get into the longer distances. And he came to me. He's like, Andy, every time I get to like mile 30, I feel like my neck is killing me and I feel like I'm going to shit my pants. And so we look at his breathing and it's completely dysfunctional, right? Chest is moving up, abdomen's moving inward, shoulders and neck are all kind of rolling forward and flipped it, gave him functional breathing. And we gave him this breathing first ethos where it was like, I want you to go run and I don't want you to wear a watch. I don't want you to care about how far, how long, well, I mean, distance will know, but like, forget the time metrics, forget pace, forget all that stuff. Just focus on, is it deep? Is it functional? Is it slow? And if it is, keep going. And if it's not, back off a little bit. Go as hard as your breathing will let you go. He's like, okay, very trusting. And about a month later, he's like, well, I'm running faster and I'm not wearing a watch. So that's great because it gets back and sees the time is faster. Flash forward a year and a half later, and he runs the Cocodona 250. And he got two miles off course and had to run two miles back on. So he ran 254 miles in 86 hours with his mouth closed. And when I say breathing with his mouth shut, I'm going to kind of do a little impression. That doesn't mean going... Right, right. Right? That means breathing in those 10 words and exhaling. I'm going to make this little sound here. It's going to sound like I'm whispering with my mouth shut, which means I'm using my glottis. That's my voice box. Okay? So it's going to sound like this. In, silent inhale. So by doing that, he ran the whole thing. He just ran the first ever Oregon 200 and won by two and a half hours. And he beat a bunch of pros. This guy's a working stiff. He's working in the ICU right now. He's a PT. But he's dusting people because he's putting breathing first. Hmm. Now, are there situations in your life like the eight-minute wrestling match you described? Man, that's going to be hard. But if you look at the best jujitsu athletes in the world, what do they value most? They value their breathing, mm-hmm. right? This is the thing that we control that controls everything else. So I might, th- I might be like thinking – immediately for performance. Oh, I have to get a bigger breath in or, or I can't, I can't do that. That's ego talking. If you can train yourself to put breathing first and train everything else up to it, like I go out for a run with the simple edict of I'm going to breathe slowly and functionally. 
not go as fast as my legs can go, but go as fast as my breathing will let me go. You do that very quickly, it starts to come along, right? I've seen people, whether it's kids or people in their 90s or pro athletes or weekend warriors, like everybody can get this. Yeah. And it's just a matter of applying it to whatever you're doing. So you can fill in the activity and I feel confident that it can be done, but it can't be done without these mechanics. Like you cannot maintain nose breathing unless your diaphragm is firing first. If you're just using the top hand of the bellows and using your neck and shoulders, nose breathing is going to be impossible. The air is moving too fast. You're going to collapse your nostrils and you're going to be pissed and you're going to be scared because you're going to feel all that CO2 building up. But instead, when you're breathing slowly and functionally, you kind of start taking almost like you said of like, wow, I feel really calm. You start taking that sort of meditative aspect of breathing and applying it to whatever you're doing. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I, I, I don't really love the word meditation. I kind of, it just bristles me a little bit only because if you're, uh, because when I hear like perfect example on that podcast we were referencing before where those two wonderful guys, right. Yep. They were sort of yep. talking Will about their towards it. Everybody has to, qualify. I'm not really into meditation, but then I blah, 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 and went yeah. into it, right? So meditation evokes a certain image. Yes. And let's face it, if you're some you know rancher from Eastern Oregon and you have a heart attack and you're my patient in the ICU and I say, okay, let's talk about meditation. You're going to be like, get the fuck out of here, buddy. Right? But if I say, okay, we're going to talk about your breathing. All right. What about my breathing? I'm breathing fine. Here we go. And then we then we're in, you know. So it's just how we're talking about it. But you better believe he's getting all the meditative aspects, whether he's sitting up and walking around the hospital room or it's the ultra runner. So when you go out there and think, okay, for my run, I'm breathing deeply and slowly, you're gonna basically meditate the whole time. Yeah. You're gonna be sort of feeling your body and sensing your body and oh. hearing the sounds around you and kind of keeping that big picture thinking happening without even realizing it. So we don't actually have to call it meditation and scare people off, even though I know it doesn't scare some people. It's a powerful tool for many, many people. And I've realized that, holy crap, by pursuing breathing, I actually became a pretty great meditator. But if we can just shift that language and make it approachable, meet that person where they are, I think we're going to get more converts. That's you know, why we're going to get about, more people believe it. That's why I talk about awareness, right? I mm -hmm. much prefer that term. Um, mm -hmm. And even why I use mind fitness instead of mental health. It's the same thing to me. Yeah. Like people go, oh, mental health. I don't want to talk about that. But if it's like, oh, it's why I knew you and I were going to connect because like <laughs> you care about the language. I was just yeah. sitting there like, yeah. uh huh. I was, I won't lie. I was so expecting somebody to just like spout a bunch of breath work at me and, 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 and make me roll my eyes. And even one of my like cohorts in this PT group was like, she's like looking at me to see what happens because she knows my propensity for it. But I just sat there and like took notes and was like, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, this guy cares about how we talk about stuff. So yeah, I, I, you and I are simpatico. Yeah, no, it's good. No, it was great. I was, and I really enjoyed the conversation we had after that, which obviously spurred this, uh, having this conversation here. Um, and yeah, exactly to that point on the meditation thing. It's, I think, again, people overcomplicate it or they, they think it's got to be a certain thing with the sort of sit lotus position with burning incense or whatever it is. And to me, it's just, it's just that awareness practice and that has to be sort of the, the root of anything else that you, you build on top of it, you know, and it just doesn't need to be complicated or anything, but the same thing you're talking about with, well, it's really about how you breathe all, all like the all the time, right? Not just the the breathwork practice as much right. as I, I still think like, you, you know, you can do techniques that help you. To me, it's the same thing. I talk about meditation. It's like, I don't meditate to become a master meditator. 
I don't right. want to go live in a cave by myself for years on end or anything like that. More power to you if you want to do that. But I do it so that I'm more functional the rest of the time. So my life is better, right? So I'm more aware when I get cut off in traffic or someone, you know, something happens that I, I don't like, or there's a big line at the grocery store or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm more prepared to be aware and calm and and respond better in those situations because of a little practice that I can do for a couple minutes every day. Right. And so that's, that's kind of where it comes into play. Do you Um, ever find yourself like walking into a stressful situation and practicing at the same time? Sure. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trained. I want to give people the freedom to start blurring the lines between exercise, walking, breathing, dancing, lifting, it's all movement and it's all kind of intertwined. Like I'm so crazy at this point, Chris, that I've chugged so much grief and death and I've gotten so down into this wormhole of breathing that the lines are so blurred that I see every single breath I take and every movement I make as a celebration of the fact that I'm not dying in an ICU bed. Yeah, sure. And that I get to breathe, right? It's my privilege. Yeah. So, that kind of brings me to a, a story that I, I sort of started, but I wanted to finish. Right? Okay. We started talking Great. about all these breath holds and, and, and what it does is just put you in this hyper vulnerable place. And that's really all breathing does. Like deep, slow breathing puts you in a more vulnerable state where you can calm down and slow down and actually start to feel your emotions. And breath holding does that in a very extreme way. It's, it's like, it's, it's a huge shove to the system rather than just kind of like gently nudging it a little at a time. So a gentleman walked into my office. I did this workshop at a a, a ski shop here and he came in and he said, you know, Andy, I've had panic attacks for 55 years in the middle of the night since Vietnam, right? I, I, every night I wake up (gasps) like that. And I've been going down this, this kind of breathing hole for a couple of years with YouTube and books and this and that. And I'm kind of like getting a little, a little something like I can tell that this is, the right road, but I can't gain any traction. What do I do? And to his credit, he laid everything out there. And, you know, we gave him those tools. We got him functionally breathing. He really nailed that. And it was probably the third or fourth visit. We gave him these static breath holds. And what I really talked him through was, here's how you're going to mentally extend that, right? You're going to be as still as possible and feel all the, you know, the the sensations in your body and hear all the sounds around you. You're going to say these words of affirmation to yourself. And I kind of let him guide that just the simple words. Maybe it's you're enough, you're loved, you know, all these things, whatever it is, but saying it in I form, like I'm enough. I'm, 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 a lo-, you know, for him, it was, I can actually remember it's, I know, I trust, I remember I'm a part of everything and everything's a part of me. And that's what he'd say to himself over and over, over mm-hmm. and over. And then he'd count down. If he got really to the end of that breath hold and wanted to extend it, he'd count down from 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And then he'd breathe in. Listen to a song, do it again. Repeat, listen to a song, do it again. So three rounds. He did well and I watched him laying there. And on that third round was the first time that he finally like inhaled functionally. And we actually did four or five rounds that day to kind of get used to it. The first couple, it was like really hard for him to breathe in functionally, but he sort of settled in. And I watched him lay in there and I just watched these tears just start rolling out of his eyes. And I didn't make a thing of it, but I just said to him, I was like, so... You know, how'd that go? He said, I felt a lot of powerful things I'm not used to feeling, is what he said. It's okay. 
And the marching orders were do this first thing in the morning. First pee and then do this first thing in the morning because that sort of sets you up for the evening of sleep. Mm-hmm. And he emailed me. I'll never forget this. I got an email in my inbox at 7.30 in the morning that just said, you are a healer because he slept for the first time in 55 years. Yeah, wow. And I'm not saying it's the only tool, but I've watched this work on some pretty powerful cases of insomnia, panic attacks. It's even working with Tourette's. Yep. Right? All these complex neuromuscular psychosocial disorders that we throw drugs at and we throw exercise at and we throw counseling at, this is kind of all those at once, right? Because you're doing the therapy in there. You're talking yourself into this state of calm in a very vulnerable state. You're using your breathing to send neurologic signals that are helpful and you are showing up. I tell people it's not about how long you can hold your breath. It's about showing up to do it and prioritizing yourself first. Now, that's not the only solution. But I've seen enough to know that functional breathing beats just breathe every single time, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of like the ICU. It's like, what are your options? Lay in bed or don't. I'm choosing don't. Hi, I'm Andy. Nice to meet you. I'm better than nothing. Let's get out of bed, right? That's basically it. Hi, I'm Andy. Nice to meet you. Here's functional breathing. I think this will be more helpful than just breathe. And all we do is just weave that in to your entire life. That's your core strengthening. That's your sleep strategies. That's your emotional regulation. Do you know that breathing is actually a nonverbal language between creatures? Mm. So one of the things we talk about all the time is like auto-regulation, like calming myself down, but I can actually calm someone else down. So horses do this to humans and humans do it to humans, right? If If a kid is, you know, on the spectrum and they've got a lot of sensory integration issues and they really can't seem to regulate, you put that kid on a horse and it tends to work. Part of the reason is that that horse breathes like six times a minute Mm. and it just chills this kid out because whichever nervous system is more dominant there is going to start to affect the other one. And the same thing works like with my five-year-old, right? There are times where she's just a full-fledged maniac five-year-old just like losing her mind, right? Scoop her up, face her forward so she's not facing me, so she can feel my body against hers. And I'll say to her, I'm like, Gigi, I'm going to breathe the way I want you to breathe. And nobody's going to talk until we're done breathing. And then I'll just hold her like that. She can feel my anatomy, diaphragm first, chest second, shoulders are staying still, and she'll hear that little glottis exhale. And you'll feel three, four breaths in, body just melts. And I give this advice to parents, right? This works all the time with their kids and it also works at end of life. So I've trained hospice caregivers. This is how you communicate with somebody at the end of their life. You can't talk them into thinking they're safe. You got to let them know it. And so if you breathe in a way that lets them know I'm here, you're safe, you're calm, you're okay. All of a sudden their blood pressure goes down. Mm -hmm. Their heart rate goes down all those stressors go down, right? And it's, it's kind of that gateway into that spiritual element, right? And even the word spiritual, word spiritual, because I know you love words. Oh, I know that. I know where you're going with this. I know, I know. Yeah, right. It comes from spiritus, Latin yeah. for breathing. Breathing. So yeah. that's why every single spiritual practice in the world has some element of breathing. I, I, it's kind of staggering to me. And at the same time, <clears throat> totally believable that we don't understand this thing. So I got to wrap this up. 
uh, and I know you could talk about this all day, so, but we can, <laughs> we can pick it up again another time and do more of it. A couple last things I want to get to. Um, are there any other books? I've, obviously, James Nestor's book is great. I think, I think for anybody out there, it's a, it's a really approachable book. It's super easy. It's fun. He weaves his own story in there. Uh, it's, it's a pretty quick read too. So I really think that's a great starting point in terms of breathing for people out there. It's the only one I've read. So are there other ones out there that are good or take it down a you hmm. know, different perspective or anything that you would recommend? Great question. The best one that I have found out there is breath because yep. I think it's written in the most sort of scientific skeptical approach. There's a really interesting book called jaws that's written by it's a Stanford press book and the authors are Ehrlich and Kahn. Okay. And it talks all about the airway and sort of how it's developed and, and what it's doing to our kids. And it sort of gives you an inside look into dentistry and kind of the different perspective, whether we're looking at the tooth first or the jaw first or the skull first or the airway first. And mm -hmm. there's all kinds of infighting within dentistry and orthodontics as to like how to approach this thing. Yep. Um, I, al I always recommend the book Livewired by David Eagleman. Okay. Because it talks about this concept of neuroplasticity, which even that will, he'll even point it out. Like plasticity isn't quite the right word because we don't mold and then are set. We're like constantly rewiring. Mm. We are in fact live wired. We're constantly changing. And that backs up the idea that like influencing your breathing, you're, you're wiring yourself differently. Like you kind of can't unlearn how to do this if you teach your body to do it. So that's why it's such a good investment. But as far as like specific breathing books go, I kind of have little picadillos with a lot of them. You know, okay. there's, there's a, a, an author out there named Patrick McEwen. He's a, at one point he was, he was a, a business executive and, and then he sort of switched gears and became a breathing coach. So, you know, again, it sort of points to that thing of like everybody out there is a breathing expert. So, you know, we can kind of all do it. But he comes from the Buteyko school of breathing, which is a Ukrainian fellow who, who pioneered this idea of, of slowing things down. And, and, and the thing you always hear them say is low and slow. They want you to breathe low and slow, breathe less. Yes. And that concept doesn't resonate well with me because it's not that functional, right? You can't do that all the time. And, and maintain your performance. And yeah. they also advocate for things like breath holds while you're walking, which again is not functional, not that safe. So we can replace that by simply slowing it down. You're going to get a lot of those benefits yeah. by trying to breathe slowly I, and functionally. I, yeah. And I'm with you on that one. Like it's interesting you, you mentioned that because that's in Nestor's book, that sort of breathe less idea. And I was yeah. Like, yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if I fully support it. I tried it a little bit. I always go to, I think you and I agree on this, is calm, breathe calmly and quiet, yeah. like quietly. Yeah. I'm always like, you should be breathing the, all this you talk about, all the like, like big inhales. I'm like, when I'm relaxed and calm and I'm big on that, that's what I'm trying to do for the most part. Right. That's not how I breathe. So why would I be doing that as like a technique to try to make myself calmer? To me, it's like, I always go to trying to breathe in a way that you could sneak up behind somebody and they wouldn't hear you. So it's like you're breathing. So, there's elements to that. Like, so the, the other thing that's tricky about the low and slow thing is knowing what we know about this mechanical pump that your breathing is. It's like yeah. this giant pump for everything. If you just say, don't pump very much, yeah. back pain, digestive problems, circulatory problems, right? So we actually want as much big pumping as we can get. We just want it to go slow. Okay. And then quiet is a tricky one, okay? Because this okay. is where we kind of start talking about exhale. 
So I agree with you. Your inhale should be almost silent, right? Okay. I don't want to hear any restriction. Like there might be some restriction in your nose. That's, that's going to happen, right? There's not much we can do about it. But if you're hearing restriction in the glottis, which sounds like this, yeah. that was me breathing in. A yeah. lot of people come from yoga practices with something like that. And, yeah. you know, they, they come up with Sanskrit terms for what it may be. I don't speak Sanskrit. I don't know it that well. Um, and actually, I have yet to meet anybody that's like, I speak Sanskrit. But people often come in saying, oh, this is my Ujjayi breathing, or this is my Pranayama, this is my breath of fire. This, I mean, yeah. it's very confusing. Yep. That is a, a, a problematic thing. If we're restricting the inhale and getting that glottis closure, it leads to all kinds of dysfunction. So if you are doing that right now in your day-to-day life, just simply let go of the glottis, okay? So now to exhale. Exhaling is where we're going to make sound, right? Exhaling is what I'm doing right now to talk to you. Yep. Exhaling is how I sing. It's also how I make that little whisper that I made with the glottis on the way out. Yep. So that can be really helpful. Okay. So there's times when you want to be quiet, but it's physiologically super duper important that a human be loud. You know, that same patient that we're talking about, the, the, the gentleman with the 55 years of panic attacks in Vietnam. Of all the tests that we do in this initial intake, we, we do a video of your breathing mechanics, we do you know carbon dioxide tolerance measurements, we measure the size of the breath you can take, but we also do a sustained vocalization. Basically, I time how long you can sustain 64 decibels. Ah, just like that. That was the hardest test for him to do. Because as soon as he heard his voice, it was like, no, shut it down. And his whole posture is this like, flexed forward, closed down, looks like a kid who just got screamed at and put in a corner. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you look in the thesaurus, this is kind of taking some of the, the best information I've ever heard from a voice coach. Her name's Dina Cam. She has opened my eyes to this. I was a singer my whole life. But I did not sing the way that, that she taught me how to sing. Right. So if you look in the thesaurus, she'll point out all the words that describe loud or bad rude, crass, vulgar, all this other stuff. And almost all the words that describe quiet are good, Mm. calm, peaceful, and serene, and tranquil. And so we're basically teaching kids from a very early age, shh, quiet. Nobody wants to hear you. And that creeps into their nervous system, and it creeps into their breathing, and then they just tighten everything up and Mm. stop using all their breathing muscles. So while it is important to be able to be quiet and be calm and be still, Every human being needs the ability to fill the room with the sound of their voice, mm-hmm. right? And, and like, look at the politicians that we elect. We don't elect politicians that talk like this. Right. We elect people that can do this and this and this, you know? Yeah. And, and I'm sure the same can be said. If you look back at, like, your commanding officers and the people that really rose to leadership throughout whatever levels you've been in, none of them are quiet all the time. None of them are, are, are hiding themselves. They all have this ability to turn it up, turn it down. Sure. Yeah. So when it comes to day-to-day breathing, there is a quiet element. But even still, if I'm breathing like this. Yeah, I got you. That loudness is a sound that I can hear. And it's a feeling that I can feel, which means I can latch on to it. So I can yeah. stop thinking so much, right? If thoughts are stories about the future and the past, that sound that I just created is happening right now. Yeah. So it's the beginning of a meditation practice is the sound. Yeah. Good point. All right. Well, any, any uh, kind of, for this session anyway, any last 
bits of wisdom you want to leave people with? Anything like big that we didn't cover that? I think the biggest thing is just, I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm. I didn't know I was harming people. And I think there's a lot of people out there that don't know what they don't know and don't realize that some of the things that they're saying are, are probably affecting people negatively. Yep. But what I can say is this is your, your podcast, Rare Sense, right? We talk about like common sense, rare sense, common knowledge, rare knowledge. This is exceedingly rare mm-hmm. Yeah. to understand what all these little pieces do. And yeah, we've been like going deep down the wormhole for like two hours on all this stuff and I could keep going, but it doesn't have to be all that, right? It is as simple as those 10 words and slowing it down. So what I'd encourage any listener to do who is curious or who is motivated or who is suffering is start conducting your own breathing experiment on yourself. Find your diaphragm, look in the mirror, watch your chest gradually expand and notice your shoulders. See if you can turn them off. If that's doable, go nuts with it. Do it all the time. This isn't like PT where you get like, okay, here's your three sets of 10, four times a week. This is like 20,000 opportunities every single day that you have an opportunity to nudge the system. Yep. And the last breath doesn't matter. The only one that matters is this one and the next one. So if you can kind of approach breath thinking just in terms of those finite things and breathing in terms of this big, amazing concept that might be the single most impactful and powerful thing you do all day, I think you're going to be in the right zone. Cool. We'll leave it with that, man. It's a great message to send people off with. All right. If people are curious for more, I do have a website. It's academywestperformance.com. They can check that out. We have online courses and we have individual care. We work with people all over the world. And my favorite thing to talk about is your breathing, Chris. Awesome. And you're where? You're in Oregon. Yeah. I'm in Oregon. I'm in a beautiful town called Bend, Oregon. Oh, nice. Nice. We didn't even go go over the turn Bend. That's awesome. Um, we both live in very nice places. Uh, all right, brother. It's cool. not by accident. Cool. No, no. So until next time, man. Cool. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks, bro. 